Today, we discuss a shocking arrest out of Canada, the current turmoil between Israel and Hamas, and the tangible effects of bad policy under the current presidential administration. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope and pray you had a fantastic weekend. Goodness gracious, we have quite a lot to cover today. But before we do, just want to thank you so much for being on this journey with me. It is an absolute honor to be able to speak with you today about these important topics. As always, if you've enjoyed this show, if you've seen it as a blessing and a helpful resource for you, make sure that you subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. Also, make sure to share this show with your community for all of their information. You can head to my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. All right, ladies and gents, let's jump into it. I've got a few stories that I want to cover today, some domestic, some international, all breaking news, all very important to understand. This first story I want to share, especially I hope and pray will be a wake up call for all of us. This is John Brown reporting with the Daily Wire. Calgary police, which is a city in Canada, Calgary police arrest Polish pastor who refused to allow police health officials to disrupt service. Honestly, Canada's a mess right now. I mean, that's really the moral of the story here. Um, Number one, Canada's a mess. Number two, if we are naive enough to believe this would not happen here, we are a mess. (laughs) So I'm going to read the story. Calgary police on Saturday arrested the Polish pastor who made international headlines last month for twice refusing to allow police and public health officials to disrupt his health service, or excuse me, his church service. Now, this is a different pastor than I've mentioned in the show previously. There's another pastor um, with uh, J- James Coates with Grace Life Church. That's that's a whole separate situation. He was also arrested for having church services. This is another pastor in a similar area that was arrested for doing the same. Pastor Arthur Pawlowski and his brother, David Pawlowski, were stopped on their way home from a church by a motorcade of heavily armed police vehicles. Informed they were under arrest for allegedly violating Alberta's Public Health Act, the two were removed from their car placed on the wet ground in the middle of the highway, handcuffed and dragged into police vans, according to video of the incident. You can actually watch this video. Um, I haven't been able to upload um, show notes in a while, but I'm going to do a big show note dump this weekend. So if you are subscribed to my mail list on refiningpoliticsandculture.com, get ready for that. I'm going to send you all um, show notes from kind of the last 10 episodes, and the video in this one will surely, surely be included. So this incident, I just want to read you this again. And remember, this is happening to a pastor, a pastor for hosting a church service. No other crime. He hosted a church service. So pastor and his brother were stopped on their way home from a church by a motorcade of heavily armed police vehicles. Informed they were under arrest for allegedly violating Alberta's Public Health Act, the two were removed from their car, placed on the wet ground in the middle of the highway, in the rain, handcuffed and dragged into police vans. You are Nazis, Pawlowski yelled as they cuffed him. You are Nazis, you Gestapo psychopaths. Gestapo psychopaths, you are Gestapo. A passerby heckled the police as they drove off, calling them Nazi cowards for how they were treating the pastor and his brother. I mean, honestly, this is wild. I, I've I, This video is insane. I've never seen anything like this before in North America. The officers had showed up earlier to Pawlowski's church, but they were ejected by a large group who gathered in support of Pawlowski and his congregation. Calgary police said in a statement that both Pawlowskis were charged with organizing an illegal in-person gathering, as well as requesting, inciting, or inviting others to join them. 
So literally hosted a church service and opened their doors to people to attend this church service in Canada and arrested for it and dragged into a police van. On Thursday, May 6, 2021, this is the Calgary police uh, statement. AHS obtained a court of Queens bench order that applies to gatherings, including protest demonstrations and rallies. This order imposes new restrictions on organizers of protests and demonstrations requiring compliance with public health orders, including masking, physical distancing, and attendance limits. Earlier this morning, CPS lawfully enforced this order by proactively serving an organizer of a church service with the court order in an effort to ensure that citizens attending the Saturday service were abiding by the current COVID-19 public health orders. The order was served prior to the church service, and CPS did not enter the church during the service. What the Calgary police conveniently leave out here is that they they surely tried to, um, but the church attendees uh, basically made a barricade and and shouted them out. The service organizer acknowledged the injunction, but chose to ignore requirements for social distancing, mask wearing, and reduce capacity limits for attendees and continued with the event. It is important to understand that law enforcement recognizes people's desire to participate in faith-based gatherings as well as the right to protest. Clearly, that's a lie. However, as we find ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic, we all must comply with public health orders in order to ensure everyone's safety and well-being. So what they're really saying is, yeah, sure, we respect your right to gather for religious circumstances, but not when we're 14 months into a quote-unquote pandemic with a 99.8% survival rate for the mass majority of population. And at this point, this is really a power grab more than it's for anyone's safety. Palowski had been expecting an an arrest for weeks after he drew international attention for forcefully driving out an Alberta health inspector and armed police who entered um, the cave of Abdalam uh, Adalam Church during an Easter worship service. When they returned weeks later to serve him a court order, he kicked them out again. As the Daily Wire reported, Court of Queen's Bench Justice David Gates authorized police and health officials on April 23rd to, quote, use such reasonable force as they deem appropriate to gain access to the church building. Again, if you were really concerned about a pandemic, why does getting all up in people's faces in order to gain access to a church make any sense? It doesn't, but they haven't bothered to explain that. The court order also forbid uh, Palowski or anyone else from interfering with officials attempting to enter his church. And if he resists, permitted law enforcement to do anything necessary to arrest him, imprison him and drag him before a judge. I cannot believe I am reading this about a church in North America. Now, here's the thing. Palowski, he grew up under the jackboot of the Soviets behind the Iron Curtain in Poland. And he's been sounding the alarm regarding what he perceives to be growing state tyranny in Western countries under the guise of public health. And he is absolutely right. During a recent interview with Canadian politician Maxime Bernier, Palowski explained his belief that the forces are using COVID-19 pandemic to destroy the middle class, leaving behind just the very rich and the very poor who are easily controlled. He's absolutely right. And he's seen it before. And the the moral of the story for me in sharing this right now is obviously to pray for this pastor and to pray for all other pastors like him. It's also to say that we cannot be naive and apathetic to what is happening right on our doorstep. If we are naive enough to believe that this couldn't happen here, then ultimately we deserve it. I mean, it's it's um, to me at this point. Uh, they have warned us very clearly their intentions. The communists are the same as the communists have always been. And those who have survived communism have survived Marxist-Leninism, have actually 
um, felt the effects of religious persecution. They have warned us over and over and over that, hey, guys, what's happening here looks eerily similar to the beginnings of what happened in my home country. We need to start paying attention to this. We need to listen to these people that are warning us. Apathy will be our downfall if we are not careful. I remember, and I may have shared this, sh- this story before in this show, but a few months back, I was actually surfing and I was out in the water and um, enjoying my morning. And I got into this political conversation, as I often do, uh, (laughs) with a gentleman that was surfing next to me. And he was in his early 60s. And he actually was from Hungary. And his family fled Hungary um, in the middle of the night. He felt the effects of communism, felt the heavy boot and the burden of communism that started with the overreach of religious liberties and ultimately the eradication of any religious liberties. And as we were talking, he basically told me through tears in his eyes that he is he's worried, he's concerned about what we're seeing here because he came to the United States and the United States at the time was a beacon of freedom, a total juxtaposition to the communism that he had fled. But now what he is seeing in this COVID season is giving him flashbacks to what he witnessed as a high schooler um, leaving Hungary in the midst of persecution. And so for me... It's very simple. The communists, the people who have survived communism have warned us over and over and over again that the communists are the same as the communists have always been. And for some reason, we don't believe them. We don't take it seriously. And like I said in the last episode, those who ignore the history, fail to learn from it, are doomed to repeat it. And so we cannot let apathy, we cannot let naivety be our downfall. We have to learn from stories like this, recognize it's right on our doorstep, Pray for this pastor, pray for all of the pastors like him, and ensure that we are taking a line-in-the-concrete stance on issues like this. This isn't even about politics at this point. It is about the future of Western free Republican-style democracies, not Republican party-wise. I mean, representative republic government. Now, Canada obviously doesn't have that like we do in the United States to the same degree. But for us, it's really important that the rights of the individual are at the forefront of our mind when we look at policy. That's not a right or left issue. That has to be something that we all rally behind. Um, Otherwise, this is just a very slippery slope that we will escalate down at a speed like our country has never seen before. All right, second story I want to read you. This is breaking news out of Axios, and I will share my thoughts dispersed throughout the reading of the story. Jerusalem crisis, Hamas fires rockets, Israel begins military campaign. Days of tension in Jerusalem escalated into an exchange of fire on Monday as Hamas fired dozens of rockets toward Israel and the Israeli military responded with strikes of its own and said it was preparing for a military operation that could last several days. Now, before I go any further, I'm actually thankful that Axios is willing to at least admit right off the bat here the truth of what happened, which is that Gaza started this. Hamas actually started this bombing campaign and Israel is is simply retaliating. If you ask some American progressives like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, which I'll talk about their responses in a second, they will tell you that actually Gaza's the victims in this. The Palestinians are the victims in this, and Israel's the one that starts any conflict. In fact, Rashida Tlaib goes as far as to call Israel an apartheid state and, uh, and sympathizes with all Palestinians as the victims in this ongoing campaign of terror from Israelis. I mean, that's honestly her view toward it, toward it and she's an American politician, which is wild. Um, Why this matters, this is the first time Hamas has fired rockets at Jerusalem since 2014. Translation, Hamas didn't feel comfortable doing this when Trump was in office. And I'm going to get back to that in a second. Um, It comes during the most sensitive days on the calendar, the last days of Ramadan and the Jerusalem Day commemoration on Monday. 
and as political crises royal both the Israeli and Palestinian governments. Starting early Monday morning, Palestinian protesters clashed with Israeli police in the old city of Jerusalem at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, or Temple Mount, one of the holiest sites for both Muslims and Jews. Around 300 Palestinians were wounded with 10 in critical condition. Those clashes followed days of protests over the planned evictions of six Palestinian families from a Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem to make way for Jewish settlers. Israel's Supreme Court delayed its decision on the on the evictions on Sunday. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ordered the closure of the Temple Mount to Jewish visitors and later ordered the rerouting of an annual nationalist parade so that it would not pass through the Muslim Quarter and the Damascus Gate, two potential flashpoints in the old city of Jerusalem. But the militant group Hamas gave Israel an ultimatum on Monday afternoon, threatening military action if all Israeli police didn't leave the mosque compound by 11 a.m. So this is a protesting clash. And what does, by the way, that really started over evictions of six families So this is something that the Supreme Court is dealing with. This can be handled at the local level. This is something that does certainly not merit military action. But what does Hamas, a terrorist group, decide to do anyways? They fire rockets from Gaza toward Jerusalem around 50 miles away. Hamas then fired another 40 rockets toward Israeli towns close to Gaza. The Israeli Air Force then retaliated with strikes in Gaza and said it had killed three Hamas operatives. Um... The Israeli security cabinet convened for an emergency meeting and decided on a wider response, which which Israeli military officials said would be wide ranging and could last several days. Now, this is a rapidly evolving story, and I'm sure on Thursday I will have more to share about it. But there's a few thoughts that I want to give immediately. First, anytime there's a conflict related to Israel, you have this group of progressives in the United States that are very anti-Israel, very pro-Palestinian authorities, which, by the way, I like to make that distinction, because just like when I talk about China, the Chinese government is the evil faction. The Chinese people are often persecuted by their own government. Palestinian authorities is the same way. Hamas and the Palestinian authorities are are led by evil. Evil desires the annihilation of the state of Israel. They're corrupt. They're led by terrorist ideals. And often it's the Palestinian people that suffer under that because the Palestinian government receives money, uses it for terrorist activities, and the people of the regions, Gaza, parts of the West Bank, are left in the dust because their own government is more convinced with watching or more um, enticed by watching the world burn than actually helping their people. But what you'll have is these American progressives that still just love to hate Israel. And so they will sympathize with the Palestinian authorities, not just the Palestinian people. For example, Ilhan Omar this week has acted more like the press secretary for Hamas than an American congresswoman uh, who really should be defending if anything, our greatest ally in the Middle East, which is obviously the state of Israel. But Omar, who's staunchly anti-Israel and has a history of anti-Semitic rhetoric, tweeted on Monday. Remember, this is a congresswoman, elected official to one of the highest offices in the land from Minnesota. Israeli airstrikes killing civilians in Gaza is an act of terrorism. Palestinians deserve protection. Unlike Israel, missile defense programs such as Iron Dome don't exist to protect Palestinian civilians. It's unconscionable to not condemn these attacks. Omar was responding to claims by Palestinians that 20 Palestinians had been killed in Israeli airstrikes, including nine children. What the report did not mention was that Israel claimed it had targeted and killed 11 Hamas fighters who had fired rockets at Israeli civilians. The Hamas attack was aimed at Jerusalem, where Palestinians have rioted in recent days, at the instigation of Palestinian terror groups and political leaders. Earlier Monday, a Palestinian mob attempted to lynch an Israeli driver. And again, even Axios, left-leaning Axios, was willing to admit that Hamas actually started this conflict. 
Hamas is also known to fire rockets at Israel from densely populated areas in Gaza, placing civilians at risk, and also uses Palestinian civilians as human shields to protect terrorists and weapons caches. Again, if you want to be frustrated at any entity, be frustrated at the Palestinian authorities. Be frustrated at Hamas because they sacrifice their own citizens in order to watch the world burn in their hatred of Israel. Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system intercepted many, though not all, of more than 150 rockets fired by Palestinians on Monday night. Representative Omar complained that Palestinians do not have a similar system, failing to note that Israelis are not firing rockets at Palestinian civilians. And Senator uh, Ted Cruz commented again, why is a member of Congress acting as the press secretary for Hamas? Does Biden agree? Um, And that's obviously a great question to ask. Representative Rashida Tlaib, which is another Democratic congresswoman from Michigan who has even more extreme views than Representative Omar about Israel, said on Monday that the United States should not give billions of dollars in military aid to Israel because of its alleged racism and dehumanization. Omar sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and was recently promoted a leadership position despite these views. And again, remember, Rashida Tlaib has called Israel an apartheid state, saying that they promote dehumanization. Um, and she's she's obviously sympathizing with the Palestinians in this specific circumstance as well. And so obviously the response from some American progressives has been really disheartening because in a moment like this, you'd hope that there'd be unification in our country around supporting our ally. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Another important note here, and this is where I want to start to shift the conversation a bit to the current presidential administration, give a sort of report card over how the first four months have gone. It's important to recognize that in the foreign policy conversation, this type of stuff did not happen under Trump. And in fact, I want to read you a story out of The Guardian. And obviously, The Guardian is very left-leaning. And so that's that's going to be a factor in their coverage of this. But I, I want to get the gold out of this and understand how important it is to recognize the massive foreign policy differences between the current administration and the last and how the actions of the current administration have led to instances like what we are seeing currently, the clash between Israel and the Palestinian authorities. Biden restores $200 million in United States aid to Palestinians that was slashed by Trump. The U.S. will restore more than $200 million in aid to Palestinians, reversing massive funding cuts under the Trump administration. We plan to restart U.S. economic development and humanitarian assistance for the Palestinian people, the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said in a statement. The aid includes $75 million in economic and development funds for the occupied West Bank and Gaza, which will provide food and clean water to Palestinians and help small businesses. A further $150 million will be provided to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, a UN body that supports more than 5 million Palestinian refugees across the region. Now, a few quick, really important notes here. First is that anytime you see money going to the United Nations in assistance for Palestinians. Um, Remember, the United Nations takes a very anti-Israel stance. They have for the last few decades. It's a total mess. It's one of the primary reasons I think we should defund the UN and we should pull out. I know that's a radical view in our current policy conversation, but it is one that I believe fullheartedly. I think we should abolish the UN. I think it no longer serves its purpose. And unless radical reform takes place, I think that the UN is doing far more harm than good. The second thing that I want to say here um, is that Part of the problem with claiming that you're giving money to Palestinians is that you're not really giving money to Palestinians. They're not going to receive positive benefits of that money because look who's managing the money. Palestinian authorities. And they hate their own people. They don't actually care. Remember, terrorism is their goal. They're, they're led by an ideology that eventually results in the world burning. That is their driver. And so you can't believe that those 
entities are actually going to have the, the best interests of their people at the forefront of their mind, which is why Trump revoked this funding. So here's what you're seeing happen. The Obama era funding to the Palestinians in the name of helping with aid. The reality is um, that money's misused. Remember, Palestinians, if you want to actually make a positive change for their people, you have to confront the government, the governing authorities in the region. But Obama gave aid. And what happens? Palestinians are attacking, attacking Jerusalem 2014. That's the last time bombing happened. Then Trump revokes, lays a harder stance against Palestinians, promotes cooperation in the Middle East between Israel and other Arab countries that doesn't help Palestinian authorities feel emboldened, um, makes them actually feel sort of isolated and like, you know what, it, it wouldn't be helpful to attack because even some of the people that they would hope that they would have on their side actually aren't on their side. And that was made clear in the Trump era. And then what happens? Trump's voted out of office. Biden comes into office, restores $200 million in funding. And look, we are seeing this action from Hamas that we have not seen since before the Trump era. So the point is, this type of stuff didn't happen under Trump. Now, I'm not saying that Biden is directly responsible for what Hamas is doing, but I am saying that it is certainly a contributing factor. The foreign policy in the region has deteriorated quickly since Trump has left office because Biden's taken, taken a totally different John Kerry-style stance to this, and that has shown that it's a failed policy initiative time after time after time. The best way to ensure peace in the Middle East is not to concede to the Palestinian authorities. If you couch out of the Palestinian authorities, all you do is embolden them. Remember, you cannot make massive negotiations like that with terrorists. The best way to in, um, embrace and enhance peace in the Middle East is through Abraham Accord type actions like what happened under the Trump administration. And I could talk about this for a while, but again, the foreign policy of the past administration and the current administration is night and day. It's hard to describe or overstate the massive differences. But if you want an example, look how fast the Middle East has deteriorated over the last three, four months. The very simple truth about the Israel-Palestinian conflict is this, by the way. One side wants to exist with their only additional desire being to have the rights to their land. So that's Israel. They just want to exist and they want rights to their land. And they'll get over little disputes about, they'll, they'll get into disputes about land, but they'll try to even handle it in the Supreme Court, like what's happening currently in Israel with these six Palestinian homes and, and potential evictions. That's their desire to exist and rights to their, what they believe is God-given land. Palestinian government wants Israelis dead. At the end of the day, Palestinian authorities want Israelis dead in the same way that the Iranian government wants Israelis dead. They do not want a state of Israel at all. They have made that very clear. Remember, the Ayatollah, I've mentioned this many times in the show, a few years back said, we have a nuclear weapon, and if we have the ability... Israel will not be a state in 25 years. They'll be annihilated off the face of the earth. That is the ideology. It's the same ideology that says death to America. That's, that's the Iranian chant. At the end of the day, that ideology is what is guiding Hamas. And so if you actually want to care for the Palestinian people, if we actually want to help those people, dealing with their, their authorities is the best way to do so. Holding the authorities accountable, not kowtowing to those authorities in the name of caring for the people. Because that's counterproductive. Palestinian government wants Israelis dead. That's the ideology. And for some insane reason, many progressives in the United States are siding with the terrorists in this one. I don't understand that, but that's currently what's happening. All right, I want to move on. Story number three. We've got a gas shortage. 
gas shortage and a cyber attack that has caused an emergency declaration issued for 17 states. This is Hank Berrien reporting last night. On Sunday, the U.S. Department of Transportation issued an emergency declaration for 17 states and the District of Columbia in the wake of a cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline on Friday. The declaration permitted fuel to be transported by road to Alabama, Arkansas, the District of Columbia, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Almost half the United States is affected by this. One expert told Politico... The ransomware attack was, quote, the most significant and successful attack on energy infrastructure we know of in the United States. The attack on the Colonial Pipeline, which runs 5,500 miles and provides nearly nearly half the gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel used on the East Coast, most immediately affected some of the company's business side computer systems, not the systems that directly run the pipelines themselves. The Georgia-based company said it shut down the pipelines as a precaution, has engaged a third-party cybersecurity firm to investigate the incident. Their website has since gone down as well. So this is a massive deal here. If the subsequent outage is not corrected within days, the eastern half of the United States, which reportedly receives 45% of fuel from the pipeline, could see a surge in gas, oil, and diesel prices. And actually breaking even since then, um, dozens of gas stations on uh, the east coast have actually reported that they are out of fuel completely. They have shut down. On Sunday, Colonial issued a statement saying the Colonial Pipeline Operations Team is developing a system restart plan. While our main lines, lines 1, 2, 3, and 4, remain offline, some smaller lateral lines between terminals and delivery points are now operational. We're in the process of restoring service to other laterals and we'll bring our full system back online only when we believe it is safe to do so in full compliance with the approval of all federal regulations. Now, here's the thing. Many predict, as I do, that they are not telling us the full story here, that this is far worse than they have led us to believe because it's Tuesday now and the situation has only worsened. The hackers who caused Colonial Pipeline to shut down the biggest U.S. gasoline pipeline on Friday began their blitz against the company a day earlier, stealing a large amount of data before locking computers with ransomware and demanding payment, according to people familiar with the matter. Bloomberg Bloomberg News reported, adding, the intruders, who are part of a cybercrime gang called Darkside, took nearly 100 gigabytes of data out of the Alpharetta, Georgia-based company's network in just two hours on Thursday, two people involved in Colonial's investigation said. Now, This is obviously very problematic. 17 states are under an emergency declaration. People are running out of gas. Fuel prices are surging through the roof. This is a total mess. It's a total mess, and we have a lot of questions that have not been answered. How on earth was this able to happen on American soil? Where are our three-letter agencies that we pay so much money for through our taxes, the FBI, the CIA? What are they doing right now? In fact, I can tell you what they're doing. The FBI is far too focused on still identifying the MAGA grandmas from the January 6th Capitol siege. They raided the wrong woman's home in Alaska last week because they thought that she was at the Capitol and stolen Nancy Pelosi's laptop. The CIA is focused on wokeism and being progressive and checking all the intersectional boxes and making sure that they hire people with anxiety disorders. That's a real thing. Um, If you've watched the two most recent CIA ads... The CIA has turned from the days of Jason Bourne to now being more about um, hiring officers with uh, anxiety disorders that check multiple intersectional boxes, making sure that they hire people that identify um, as LGBTQ. That is the new goal of CNN or not CNN, the CIA making well CNN too, Um, but the CIA is making sure that they can check as many intersectional boxes as possible. We know that the FBI has failed to address the threats of multiple mass shooters over the past few months. They knew 
that some of these perpetrators were actually threats um, before the shooting ever took place and didn't adequately address the threat that these people actually presented. We have known over the past few years that the FBI has been focused more on political operations than they have actually assessing and halting the threats that actual American people face. They're too focused on progressive politics and not focused enough on stopping the threats that actually affect the day-to-day lives of Americans. And we're paying the price for it. And the CIA is the same way. So um, that's obviously a bummer. And it's a bummer because it falls right in line with the same time that we are facing inflation that's surging, fuel prices going up nationwide. Um, And this fourth story, which I want to read you now, which is the recent awful jobs report that was just released last week. Unemployment rate increases, numbers way worse than expected. Talk of inflation grows. This is Ryan Savidra reporting. The economy appears to be struggling under President Joe Biden, according to the new jobs report that was released on Friday morning. Here's some of the top lines from financial reports. CNBC. Hiring was a huge letdown in April, with non-farm payrolls increasing by much less than expected, 266,000, and the unemployment rate rose to 6.1% amid an escalating shortage of available workers. Dow Jones estimates had been for 1 million new jobs and an unemployment rate of 5.8%. So, the Dow Jones, quote-unquote economists, had, they had estimated that there'd be a million new jobs in April. The reality, 266,000. They're off by three quarters of a million. Bloomberg, the numbers are out. And on the top line, they are way worse than expected. Something seems very off. Only 266,000 jobs created in April and the unemployment rate ticked up to 6.1%, according to the report. Axios, economists were hoping for a figure roughly 1 million jobs larger, making this the biggest miss relative to expectations in the history of the payrolls report in the United States. This is the worst monthly jobs number report relative to expectations in the history of the United States. The black unemployment rate increased. 18,000 manufacturing jobs were lost. No construction jobs. Zero were added. Unemployment for Americans without any college education increased and women had a net loss in jobs. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics said that nearly 10 million Americans, 9.8 million to be exact, remained unemployed in Biden's economy. A report from CNN warned that, quote, if you haven't felt inflation yet, it's coming. You can expect higher prices for toilet paper, diapers, soft drinks, plane tickets, a tank full of gas. CNN chief business correspondent Christine Roman said, Whirlpool is raising prices of some of its appliances by up to 12% already. The Wall Street Journal reported that many business owners say that they are struggling to find workers, which could deal a serious blow to Biden's economy. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce directly blamed the Biden administration's stimulus spending for the worse worsening economy, saying that he was paying people not to work. That's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, by the way. That's not Fox News. That's not the Daily Wire. That's not a conservative network. That's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce directly blaming the Biden administration's stimulus spending for the worsening economy. The disappointing jobs report makes it clear that paying people not to work is dampening what should be a stronger jobs market, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said. One step policymakers should take now is ending the 300 weekly supplemental employment ben- unemployment benefit, $300. Based on the Chamber's analysis, the $300 benefit results in approximately one in four recipients taking home more in unemployment than they earned working. Here is a sample of how news organizations across the political spectrum handled the news. Fast Company. Sorry, but today's jobs report sucked. Here's what you need to know. The New York Times. The jobs report. The boom that wasn't. The Washington Post. Economy picked up just 266,000 jobs in April, well below expectations as economy struggles to rebound. 
Yahoo News, April jobs report, payrolls rose by 266,000, sharply missing estimates as unemployment rate increased to 6.1%. Slate, this is Slate, one of the most far left-leaning publications in the United States. This was their headline. They were willing to be honest. The jobs report was shockingly bad. Then they said, please don't overreact. (laughs) Vox, another very far left um, entity is even willing to acknowledge that the jobs report is a problem. They said, don't freak out about the jobs report yet. So they're obviously trying to make excuses, but at the end of the day, they're still addressing this. Fox Business, U.S. hiring sharply misses expectations in April with just 266,000 new jobs added. CNN Business, major disappointment. America added way fewer fewer jobs than expected in April. Axios, U.S. adds just 266,000 jobs in April, far below expectations. MSNBC, even said, job growth in April falls short, jolts debate over Biden plans. Newsweek said Joe Biden's April jobs report posts biggest miss during presidency. So the problem, by the way, is not scarcity of opportunity. There are 7.4 million jobs available in the United States right now. The problem is we're paying people not to work. The Chamber of Commerce is absolutely right. If you make less than $32,000 a year right now, it is more advantageous for you to stay home and live off of unemployment benefits especially now that those benefits have been extended through September under the Biden administration. And by the way, this is not compassion. This is enabling of unproductive behavior. If you actually love someone, you will actually advocate for what Ron DeSantis just did in Florida, where he said, guys, it's time to start working. If you are still living off unemployment benefits, be aware that next month it's it's game over. It's time to get a job. If you can't prove that you're looking for work, then you're off these benefits. We need to get our state back to work. And trust me, it's actually more loving. I actually care for you if I desire to get you back to work. It is not loving to allow someone and to actually pay someone to be unproductive. That's enabling bad behavior. It's building codependency on the government. It's what a tyrannical regime does when it wants dependency from the citizenry to the government. It's not what a loving person does, a compassionate person does, when they want to enable people to succeed. Guess what? If you have a job, you're not dependent on the government. So if I was a tyrant, I want you dependent on the government. Therefore, the opposite of being a tyrant is to not want you dependent on the government. I want you free to embrace your liberty, your personal agency, individual responsibility. How do you know if the government actually cares about you? Are they incentivizing you to work? Are they incentivizing you to embrace personal agency? Or are they building dependency from the citizenry to the government? Second thing, if our country was run by smart people, we'd halt spending and pause federal income taxes. We'd pause any additional programs until we get the inflation under control. We certainly would not be desiring to spend $6 trillion. We'd require people to get back to work immediately, and we'd cut benefits next month, not September. We certainly wouldn't propose raising individual taxes and capital gains taxes in the middle of an economic downturn. That's absurd. We would promote investment into businesses. We'd promote the free market stimulation of the economy, not government stimulation of the economy. Unfortunately, for the last few decades, our government has taken a turn to focus on pointless initiatives because we've become too comfortable. We've forgotten the meat and potatoes of economics. We haven't read enough Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell. And this is obviously evidenced by the fact that our top quote-unquote economists were off by three-quarters of a million on their jobs predictions. If that doesn't tell you the state of our current economic institutional landscape, I'm not sure what does. Now, I want to read you one more current events story. This is Chris Pandolfo reporting last night. Biden administration refers Trump rule will force hospitals to provide sex change procedures. 
The Biden administration took action Monday to require hospitals to perform sex change procedures and offer other transgender medical services or face anti-discrimination lawsuits, restoring an Obama-era policy that had been ended by President Donald Trump. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this story. The reason I even mention this is because out of all the things to be concerned about right now, which this episode has highlighted some, and there are many more, and I'm sure even some of you can just feel it. Like this country feels like a bit of a mess right now. There's some writing on the wall that we definitely should be concerned about, and it just feels like this administration is not up to the task of handling any of this. An immigration crisis worse than anything in American history that's been created in the last three months. Inflation that's creeping up that it's nearing and approaching our doorstep, we're already starting to feel. Worst monthly job numbers in history relative to expectations, unprecedented spending on pet projects. Many blue states still locked down because of petty politics. Massive division in our country, our image on the foreign stage crumbling rapidly. Joe Biden killing the Keystone XL pipeline, sending union workers packing, destroying jobs to appease a tiny fringe of climate extremists, gutting American energy independence and security. We're seeing fuel shortages, airlines running out of fuel to fly. With all of this happening at the moment, Biden decides that the most important thing to do is to force hospitals nationwide to provide sex change surgery against their will, against their conscience, honestly, against the Hippocratic Oath. That's what this administration is focused on. It's focused on diversity quotas, and it's focused on making sure that hospitals provide sex change surgery Um, even if they believe that, because obviously this is the correct view here, that that's biologically immoral to do so. It's obviously immoral in our faith as well. If you're a professing Christian, you are giving a slap in the face to God's design, but it's also not biologically informed. It is something based on emotion rather than actual science. And there's actually a comparison that I want to make here at the end of this episode. I want to finish with this. George Marlin actually wrote this great piece last Thursday titled, Will Joe Biden be the 21st century Jimmy Carter? In his first 100 days in the Oval Office, Joe Biden has approved or proposed $6.3 trillion in new spending. How will he pay for the spending spree and manage the national debt, which is north of $22 trillion and growing every day? His proposed tax increases will cover only a small portion of expenditures. Consequently, the rest of the tab will have to be picked up by an accommodating Federal Reserve. To meet that end, the Fed will simply create money. With 20% of all money in circulation created in the past year, the question on the mind of some economists and investment bankers is, how long can the Fed run the printing presses before inflation kicks in? Politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say never. She and her leftist um, friends subscribe to a modern monetary theory that suggests the Fed can create forever new money to pay for expanding social welfare, welfare programs. History, however, suggests otherwise. As the distinguished historian Theodore H. White wrote in 1981, inflation comes when a government has made too many promises it cannot keep and papers over the shortfall with currency, which ultimately becomes confetti and faith is lost. That trenchant observation applied to what became known as the Great Inflation of the Carter Years, 1977 through 1981. In the 1960s and 70s, the culmination of President Lyndon Johnson's financing of failing Great Society programs and the faltering war at Vietnam, and President Richard Nixon's abandonment of the gold standard and his wage and price controls began to catch up. Economic and real income growth had stalled. Ever-increasing regulations had stifled business investments. Inflation had pushed middle-class families into higher and higher tax 
Braxits. But the real culprit that brought on the era of great inflation was the Fed's inordinate monetary expansion. Too many dollars in circulation caused prices to go up. During Jimmy Carter's first year in the White House, the consumer price index was up 6.5%. It hit 7.7 7 in 1978, 11.3 in 1979, and 12.4% in 1980. Here's what those staggering numbers, just quick pause here, actually meant to the American people. Between 1970 and 80, the price of milk jumped to fi- for, uh, uh, 259 cents a quart from 28 cents a quart. A pound of chopped meat went from 88 cents to a dollar and 88 cents. A pound of coffee, 91 cents to 369. As for gasoline, in 1970, it cost 37 cents a gallon versus a dollar 80 in 1980. Inflation also ate away people's savings, particularly the elderly living on fixed incomes. Many seniors locked into long-term government bonds with low interest returns could no longer live off the income and had to dip into their eroding principle to make ends meet. The ring inflation out of the economy, to ring inflation out of the economy, Fed Chairman Paul Volcker slashed the money supply and pushed interest rates through the roof. Rates on 30-year home mortgage loans hit 18%. And by 1979, the great inflation became the major topic of discussions at dinner tables throughout the nation. And the man they blamed for the mess? Jimmy Carter. When the hapless Carter claimed the inflation issue was being effectively managed, his Democratic primary challenger, Senator Ted Kennedy, bellowed, is an inflation rate of 18% manageable for the American people? Are interest rates of 18% manageable for young people who would like to buy a home? In the fall of 1980, the American people heeded Republican candidates Ronald Reagan's words. Recession is when your neighbor loses his job. Depression is when you lose yours. And recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his. It's a really famous quote, and it was sort of a rally cry against the spending policies of Jimmy Carter. Carter lost the election, receiving only 41% of votes cast. He carried only three states for a total of 49 electoral votes versus Reagan's 489. Can Biden's spending, funded by money magically created at the Fed, propel another great inflation? Great, great inflation? Yes, it can. Larry Summers, President Obama's chairman of the National Economic Council, warned in late April that the government spending these the administration is proposing could set off a new bout of high inflation. Commodity prices commodity prices have soared in the past year. Here are a few examples. The cost of lumber is up 262%. Crude oil is up 188%. Soybeans are up 84%. Sugar is up 50%. Live cattle up 18 Wheat is up 10 And home prices are up 11 The cost of food is the highest it's been in 11 years. Kimberly Clark announced it will raise prices in June on toilet paper, pull-ups, and huggies. General Mills, facing increased supply chain and freight costs, is expected to raise prices on their cereal brands. In an April 30th news story titled The Cost of Just About Everything is Rising, the New York Times even conceded the government's pumping of money into the economy through recent stimulus packages has also given retailers more room to raise prices. What politicians promise by day, Teddy White noted, inflation sneaks away at night. If history is our guide, what is being proposed by this administration currently leads nowhere pretty. And it's really important that we recognize that. We have seen history before. Jimmy Carter was a great example of this. And in my opinion, he was one of our five worst presidents in U.S. history. I have studied the presidency of Jimmy Carter in great detail. And I was not alive during the time. But I can say um, from my studies and from many conversations with people um, across the socioeconomic spectrum uh, that were alive during that time, Jimmy Carter's presidency was one that was disastrous for the United States. And actually, you know, there's there's something, too, that Jimmy Carter did that Biden um, has really gotten in a habit of doing as well. There was a little excerpt that was written about Jimmy Carter related to a speech he gave during the energy crisis of 1979. I want to read this to you. When he delivered 
Carter, his malaise speech during the energy energy crisis of 1979, he seemed to be scolding the public and blaming them for the crisis rather than proposing solutions or espousing policy. Asking Americans to drive slower, set thermostats lower, and do without Christmas lights did little to inspire confidence. And after foreign policy failures such as the prolonged Iranian hostage crisis and botched rescue attempt, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and the boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games, many Americans saw their government as weak, ineffectual, and no longer commanding respect. So... Honestly, my hope and prayer is that what's happening now leads to people waking up and realizing in 2022 in the midterms and in 2024 that these false compassion policies do not work. This voting for personality instead of policy does not work. The guy who seems more nice does not work. Look at what actually happens in policy because we have felt it in the last three months, four months. Just in the first half of this year, we have already felt the effects of bad policy. These problems were not in existence back in December. In fact, many of these arenas that I've described were on the up and up. Again, foreign policy under Trump was arguably his strongest area of his presidency. And now, in just four months, how quickly things have reverted to, honestly, the Obama era. If anything, this this term is sort of a, it's either a, a Jimmy Carter-ish term when it relates to spending and on foreign policy, it's sort of like an Obama's third term. And again, in my opinion... This is my subjective opinion. This leads nowhere pretty. So are we completely off the cliff yet? No, of course. You guys know I'm very hopeful. But the only way that we revert course and we don't head off the cliff is if we're aware of what's happening. And I only mention all this today because the media is unwilling to. My greatest concern is that we get through all of this and we head to 2022 or 2024 and these stories are forgotten or ignored. The only way people can vote in the next election cycles with actual understanding is if they have viewed the current circumstances with a clear and full perspective. The media is not giving that to people. I want to do my best in the show to fill the gaps that the media conveniently ignores. It's really, really important that we're well aware of the problems we're currently facing and why we are facing them. So are we, again, are we completely off the cliff? No, we are not. There is still hope. But my point is, is that elections have consequences. I warned of this in the fall. I said when we related to, to, when we talked about topics like foreign policy and immigration and the economy, that there was virtually no case to be made that Biden was a stronger candidate in any of these arenas. Just objectively, I, I find it very hard that anyone could make that case. Most of the time when people were voting for Biden, it's because they bought into that, well, Trump's a big racist lie and he's mean and his tweets are mean and all that stuff. It was attack on Trump's character, which, again, don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not necessarily defending Trump's character that I believe he was a racist. No, I don't believe that. But I don't think he's the nicest guy on the planet. At the end of the day, I don't really care. I want my president to be effective in policy and the current administration. It's hard to make an argument that they are effective in any scope. In fact, in, in discussions with folks on the left, you know, I've simply asked, can you name even one way in which our country has objectively improved since Biden took office? It's very hard to make the case that there's been one area of improvement. Again, unless the most important issue to you is trans surgery rights, it's hard to make a case that any area has improved um, that affects, you know, a vast majority of Americans. So that's the only reason I mention all this today. I don't mean to be hopeless about this, um, our, but we are, I'm sure feeling in areas around the country a bit of a mess right now. And it's important that we highlight where that's coming from. What are the policies that have led to this? What are some of the intricacies of these circumstances that have made us feel like, gosh, it's just, there's so much happening around us right now. If we choose ignorance, 
or if we choose to just completely tap out and say, you know what, I just can't even pay attention to all this, then we are at risk of being willfully um, uninformed and ignorant to the issues when we hit 2022 and 2024. My prayer is that just in the same way the presidency of Carter and the failures of Carter led to an overwhelming support of the presidency of Reagan, I pray that we have that in 2024. I pray that it's a DeSantis-like figure that stands up and does everything the opposite of what Biden has done and says, guys, I'm, I'm not in for this. We have seen the effects of this policy. And I pray that 47 states rally behind DeSantis. Now, do I think that that's realistic? Maybe, you know, maybe not. Um, but I do think that an overwhelming revert is realistic. I think that people could say, you know what? This is all put a bad taste in my mouth. I recognize the importance of policy. It's time for, to turn from our ways and to embrace a different route. That is my hope over the next coming years. So with that said, friends, I hope and pray that this episode has been a helpful resource for you. It has been an honor to speak with you all today about these important topics. I pray that you have a great next few days. I cannot wait to talk to you again soon. As always, if you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. Share this episode with your community if you do not mind. That helps the show grow tremendously. I'm grateful for all of you, and I will talk to you soon. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.